Australian lingo can be very confusing. As you know, I spent many years there and it took me a long time to, to try to figure out what, what Aussies were saying. First of all, they abbreviate everything. Sunglasses are sunnies and mosquitoes are mozzies and breakfast is brekkie and afternoon is, is arvo and ambulance is ambo. Get the picture. They, there's very few words that they actually pronounce the whole word. But what really confused me when I went to Australia was the fact that the evening meal is called tea, but the evening snack is called supper. I think you can understand my, my confusion about that. Well, not long after I arrived, I was invited to go out for tea with a bunch of young adults from my church. And we were, we were going to go up to, to Brisbane, or Brizzy, as they call it. Um, but here's the catch. We were invited to tea, but I was confused, and so I made myself a big plate of pasta before we went up there. It was, uh, it was, it was spaghetti, and, and which they would call spag. But, uh, but, so, so we went up to this, this area in, the, in the, the city of Brisbane, where there's all these, it's along the riverbank, it's beautiful, and there's all kinds of, of nice restaurants, and there's some really delicious options. You can have you know, a perfectly cooked steak, or a fresh seafood, or or really authentic Thai food. It was all these delicious meals that I could have had, but I was already full of my mediocre spag. And so as much as I wanted to, to have one of these meals, I just had no appetite for what was much better, would have been much better than what I made for myself. Now this is also true for us as Christians. So often we fill ourselves up on something that is inferior, so we won't have room for the best. So in our Christian walk, if we fill ourselves up, as we're talking with, with the kids, if we fill ourselves up with the junk that the world has to offer, we won't have an appetite for what God has for us. If you're feeding on worldly entertainment, you're not going to have much interest in singing the praises of God. If you're living for worldly success, you're, you're not really going to be cultivating an attitude of thanksgiving to God. If you're getting your cues from the world about, about relationships, then you're not going to have a desire for the kind of relationships that God intends for you and that God blesses. Like, it's like we said last week, we're, we're too easily satisfied. If you remember that C.S. Lewis quote, that we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant to an, by an offer of a holiday at the seashore. Well, there's one place where people often seek satisfaction, but don't find it. It's in the bottle. Alcohol is abused in a variety of contexts. People get drunk to celebrate. People get drunk to forget their troubles. People get drunk to fight boredom. And people get drunk as a social lubricant. In Ephesians 5, 18-21, Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians and us to, to put off and to put on one more time. And this is the final put off and put on in this section. As we're, seeing, as we're going to see, it also serves as a bridge leading us from a focus on the church and church relationships to the next 
section in verse 25, 22 and following that deals with family relationships. So, so the message here is, is, as it has been, put off the old self, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. And, and here specifically, the command is to put off getting drunk and to put on being filled with the Spirit. Put off getting drunk and put on being filled with the Spirit. And so we, we don't know from the context, it's, it's possible that, that even in the, the Ephesian church, that there were Christians who were getting drunk. And it's possible even in this church that there are Christians, and even those who, who claim to be Christians, who are getting drunk. This behavior should be absolutely foreign in Christ's church. As we've been seeing, Christians have already been filled with the Spirit. Right? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul talks about, about Christians as having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. That the Christians already have the Holy Spirit, they already have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And now Christians are to keep on being filled with the Spirit. So like we've seen for the past several weeks, Paul is saying, you are in Christ, so walk like it. He's saying, be what you are. After that first, uh, that first sentence in, in Ephesians 5, um, 18, he lists five participles. Now, it's probably been a, been a while for most of you since you've, you've studied grammar, you probably know what a participle is. Well, a participle is a word that is both a verb and an adjective. In this case, there, there are these five participles in verses 19 to 21 all describe what it is like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you follow along with me in this passage, you'll see them. They're, they're easy to spot because they all end in ing. Addressing Singing and making melody in verse 19. Giving thanks in verse 20. And submitting in verse 21. They are all participles. And they all describe the life of one who is, is not only filled with the Holy Spirit in the, the past tense, but also in the present tense. As we're going to see it as if each one of these is impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. So there's four points here. Now, the last three are really sub-points under the first point, but, but first of all, put off getting drunk with wine and put on being filled with the Spirit. And then, secondly, put on singing to one another, and then put on giving thanks to God, and then, fourthly, put on submitting to one another. So again, this is a put off and put on, but I want you to notice here that the contrast isn't between wine and the Spirit but it's between the behavior that they produce. Being drunk with wine leads to debauchery, but being filled with the Spirit leads to joyful, thankful, ordered fellowship. I'll say that again. Being drunk with wine leads to debauchery, <clears throat> but being filled with the Spirit leads to joyful, thankful, ordered fellowship. So first of all, in verse 18, put off getting drunk with wine and put on being filled with with the Spirit. The section begins, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Now, getting drunk was a major part of the culture in Paul's day as it is in ours. Several of us here, including myself, have had lives that were once characterized by, by drunkenness and other forms of intoxication. Notice here, though, that it, even though Paul doesn't say here, don't get drunk with beer, that doesn't mean you can go out after church and buy a case and drink up. Likewise, he doesn't say don't get drunk with scotch, but that doesn't mean you can go and down a bottle of Johnny Walker. Neither does Paul list marijuana or crack cocaine or heroin or crystal meth, but all forms of intoxication are sinful and should be completely out of the question for Christians. All forms of intoxication. Now, while the Bible doesn't speak directly against drinking alcohol, many have abstained because they didn't want to be a bad influence on others, they didn't want to be judged by others, as in Romans 14, or they didn't want to lead others into sin, 1 Corinthians 8. But it repeatedly speaks, the Bible repeatedly speaks against any form of intoxication. Unlike drugs, where it's one hit, and you're, you're intoxicated, when it comes to alcohol, it, the process is generally more gradual. Now, it might be possible to have one drink and not be drunk. Two drinks in close succession, well, it depends. Three, and you're well on your way to intoxication. So if you decide to drink, but don't put firm limits on the amount of alcohol you're going to consume, you will easily slip into drunkenness, into the attitude of, oh, I'll just have one more. Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. But Paul here isn't just concerned, as I said at the outset, Paul isn't just concerned with getting drunk. He's also concerned with what it leads to. It leads to debauchery. Now the word that's translated to debauchery refers to senseless or reckless deeds, behavior that shows a complete lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. Drunkenness has left a trail of death and destruction in its wake. It's left a massive heap of broken homes and broken lives. So much foolishness and so much immorality and so much violence and so many other sins take place when people are intoxicated. And all of this behavior is common in the world, but there shouldn't be even a hint of it in the lives of Christians. 1 Peter 4 verses 3 and 4 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, now, now, some of these things look like fun to the unregenerate. Even, even the, the kind of foolish partying of, of raucous singing and joking that takes place when people have too much to drink is sinful. Peter calls it all a flood of debauchery. And that's what he's saying, what Paul is saying here is that that's what many of your lives used to look like. Used to be getting drunk. But may that never be the case for you anymore. Now God is not a killjoy. God doesn't want to just to, to spoil your fun. He wants to instead give you something that is far, far better. He is always calling you to replace sinful behavior with, with higher joys and better pleasure. 
God wants for us. He's our Heavenly Father. So often we accept the things that the world, the, the world wants to give us, and, and whether it's alcohol or something else, and, and we forget what God is giving us. Now, if, if somebody was trying to drink as much as they can without getting drunk, well, that really, that really shows that they have a completely wrong perspective, that they're looking at the wrong things, that they're facing in the wrong direction. Those who would live that way are forgetting, again, that God has called you to something immeasurably better. That God is calling you to be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul here isn't talking about being filled in our small s spirit. Paul uses the word spirit, well, every time Paul uses the word spirit in Ephesians, he's referring, referring to an external spirit. Apart from Ephesians 2 2, where he refers to a demonic spirit, Paul is always referring to the Holy Spirit. And so in this passage, Paul is clearly referring to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we need to ask, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, in this context, it refers to a particular move of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christians to empower them to bear fruit for the glory of God. To empower them to bear fruit for the glory of God. And so here the word filled means to be filled with content. Like this glass is filled with water. John MacArthur likens this, this word filling to, to wind filling the sails of a ship. And that's really a good metaphor because the wind that fills, that fills the sails of the ship enables the ship to move. And that's true for us as Christians. That the wind of the Holy Spirit, and it's interesting, it's, it's, it's the same, pneuma, which is translated spirit, is also the same word for, for wind uh, from the Greek, but, but for the Christian, the Holy Spirit moves us to do what God is calling us to do. That He is causing us to grow in Christian maturity. This, this being filled with the Spirit is, is parallel to walking in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 16 to 18 and 23 and Romans 8, 14 and 13. Just one verse in Galatians 5, 16, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. These are, are, are parallel terms. Walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Commentator Harold Honer helpfully explains that the, the point is that walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit mean that the Spirit of God directs and empowers a believer to live a life pleasing to God and His will. In other words, it refers to what the Holy Spirit does in us and through us. Those who are filled with the Holy Spirit increasingly understand the Lord's will and increasingly walk in the Lord's will. They're, they live lives that are, are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. It's, it's this filling of the Holy Spirit, this continual filling of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies you and makes you more like Jesus every day. He enables you to live a life that is, is more and more controlled by God. Now it's interesting that this, this verb here, um, to the be filled is, is in the present tense, in the imperative mood, and the passive voice. So first of all, the, the present tense means that this is something that is to take place now. It takes place now. Be filled now. Even though you already 
have the Holy Spirit. This is an ongoing process of being filled. This is, this is uh, again, Paul is saying here to be what you are. You are filled, be filled. It's also in the imperative mood. This is not optional. It is a command. And finally, it's in, it's in the passive voice. This is something that, that, that God does to us. Now, that might sound like an oxymoron, where it's, it's a command, but it's also passive. Right? It's, it's something that they're saying that God does to it, but we're, to us, but we're commanded to do it. So how, how can that be? How can it be a command, yet passive? Well, well part of it is, is that, in a nutshell, willful sin, including drunkenness, and spiritual negligence inhibit this work of the Spirit. So, so you need to pray that the Lord will fill you with the Holy Spirit. We all need to pray that the Holy Spirit will, will fill us. But again, this is something that God does to us. So as usual, we're, we're seeing that, that God is sovereign and you are responsible. Okay, so we've talked about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, there are different perspectives on this. Some people think that being filled with the Spirit means that they're going to fall over, laugh uncontrollably, and run around acting crazily. Now that actually sounds more like being filled with what we were talking about a few minutes ago. It sounds more like being filled with alcohol than it does with being filled by the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit actually produces exactly the opposite behavior. Being filled with the Spirit means that, that, that we are to, to have orderly worship, 1 Corinthians 14.40. And, and the scriptures never encourage us to, to disorderly worship. It is not worship, it is chaos. So being filled with the Spirit leads to a life that is ordered and that is directed by God in accordance with His Word. Specifically here, Paul says that, that it produces singing and giving thanks and submitting. And with the time that we have left, let's look in turn at each of these. And, and as again, as we'll see, you need the Holy Spirit to do these things in the way that God requires. And those who have put on the Spirit and put, it, put on being filled with the Spirit are going to, first of all, in verse 19, they're going to put on singing to one another. Now, Paul, again, is, is here focusing on Christian fellowship. He's continuing the focus on the church that, he, that he's had for the, the last chapter and a half. He says, addressing, and, addressing one another and in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, three of these five, the five participles that I listed earlier are in this verse. Addressing, singing, and making melody. And these terms here, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, are all different types of music in the church. Essentially, psalms are, are sacred poems. You have 150 of them in your Bible. Hymns are, are essentially songs that are honoring God, and spiritual songs are simply songs with, with spiritual content. And, and all of these are appropriate for use in corporate worship. This, this command, again, to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is, is another one of the 30-plus 
one another commands in the New Testament. There's, there's all kinds of those commands we talk about them regularly. Love one another, serve one another. We have another one, submit to one another. These, these forgive one another. This is, this is a command to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Saying, sing to one another. This is the church singing to the church. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the, the way that, that your singing encourages and uplifts the people around you? Most of you have been doing that here this morning. It's such a delight for me to, to stand up here, and, and especially, I don't get to, to lead in the, the singing very often, but, but when I do it, it's such a delight to see so many of you singing praises to God from your heart. And, and I can tell that, that, that a lot of the time, by the looks on your faces, that, that, not that a look on your face necessarily means it's coming from your heart, but a lot of times it does. And I can see that people are truly worshiping God. And, and you know what that does is that, that encourages me. And, and it spurs me on in, in, in my worship to God. And that's true for your brothers and sisters around you as well, that, that, that when you sing, it doesn't even have to be good singing. That when you sing from your heart with, with whatever ability God has given you, that, that you are <coughs> enabling those around you to worship God as well. But not everybody sings. Now, there's all kinds of reasons why people don't sing. Embarrassment, lack of talent, distraction, don't like the style, being tired, being lukewarm, being an unbeliever. Well, none of those are good excuses. They're not. Not any of them are good excuses. If you don't sing on a Sunday morning, you need to ask why. It points to a problem in your heart. You need to examine your heart before the Lord. Because this is, is not optional. There's not a little asterisk here in Ephesians 5.19. This is a command to sing praises to God and to the church. And that's just what, what's, what this, this is. This, this corporate singing is a, is a fruit of, part of the fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so corporate singing is really an expression of worship to God. You are addressing one another, but notice that you are singing and making melody to God. See that? So there's a sense in which it's corporate, that it's horizontal, but it's also vertical, that you're making singing and making melody to God. And so your worship is ultimately directed to Him. Now friends, when you understand all that God has done for you in Christ, you will sing praises to God. You can't help but sing praises to God. That you, it's just going to bubble up out of your heart. Again, it doesn't even mean necessarily singing well. That's, that's not part of the command. Now, in heaven, you're going to have a glorified body and a glorified voice to go with it. Praise God. And of course, we're, we're, we're thankful for those among us who have been gifted with, a, with an ability to, to sing well. I'm thankful for my wife. I sing better when I'm standing next to my wife. But, but until that time, until that time when we have glorified voices, we actually, all of us, sing better when all of us sing. 
We all sound better when we all sing. And beloved, God is pleased. God is pleased when you sing praises to his name. Now, you would think that, that this command to sing would be one of the easiest commands in Scripture to obey. Well, for some, it isn't. But apart from being filled with the Spirit, it is actually impossible. It's impossible to do what God is commanding you to do. Look at that last phrase. Singing and making melody to the Lord from your heart. From your heart. Now people can sing, and people can even sing thinking they're singing to, to the Lord, but unless you are filled with the Spirit, unless God is at work in your heart, you cannot sing with your heart. I've been to many funerals where unbelievers are happy to sing Amazing Grace, but it's a tragedy that, that so few people at these funerals have actually experienced God's Amazing Grace. So, so these people who are singing Amazing Grace, they are not singing to the Lord, and that they are not doing it from the heart. Likewise, it, it grieves me that, that so many mainline churches that have, have rejected the gospel still sing the great hymns of the faith. <coughs> you'll hear false doctrine preached, but you'll hear solid doctrine sung, and it's all vanity. But when God has done a saving work in your heart, when He has filled you with His Spirit, and when He is continuing to fill you with His Spirit, there is a joy, isn't there? There's a, a joy that, that just bubbles up out of your heart. And one of the best ways to communicate that joy is in song. It's in song. Now, and if I know the distractions. I get that. I struggle with those as well. But this is an opportunity that, and a reminder that we all have saying, if, if you are here and feeling convicted because, because you, you only rarely or, or almost never sing to the Lord from your heart, this is an opportunity to say, Lord, please fill me with your spirit. I, I want to worship you in that way. Don't let this opportunity pass. Don't push away that conviction from the Holy Spirit because this is something God wants for you as well. When God has done a saving work in your heart, when He has filled you with His Spirit, and is continuing to fill you with the Spirit, again, there's a joy. There's true joy. A joy that, that can't be stifled. Don't you want that? Don't you want to walk in that? Third, Put on giving thanks to God. Verse 20. Now, Paul here is still talking about corporate worship. He's talking about what Christians do when they are together. He says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I guess, technically he's talking about beyond the time that we're together because it's to be giving thanks always. But for Christians, giving thanks should come as easily and as naturally as breathing. What do you have to be thankful for? Your life, your family, your friends, your home, your food. I could go on and on. But will you regularly give God thanks for those things? Maybe you, you take them for granted. That's easy to do. But you know what? 
even the world is thankful for those things. Now, they don't know who they're thankful to. They don't know who they're thankful to, and, and that's a big deal. But even unbelievers can say, thank you for this food, when they sit down for a meal. Even unbelievers can be thankful for common grace. But as Christians, we know who we're thankful to, don't we? We're thankful to the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and empowered to do so by the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what, what Paul is saying in this passage in, in verses 18 and 19. And you see the Trinity there, don't you? Father, Son, and Spirit. As Christians, we have immeasurably more reasons to be thankful than anybody else around us. Because we have been given Jesus Christ. The Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Romans 8.32 The Father crushed His Son for your sins. Isaiah 53.10 Jesus rose from the grave and has ascended to the Father's right hand. And one day we will go to be with Him there forever. Isn't that reason to be thankful? I'm reminded of the song, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join us in glad adoration. Again, you cannot obey this command unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only is it impossible for those who have not experienced God's saving grace to give this kind of thanks, but you are commanded to give thanks at all times and for everything. At all times and for everything. It's, it's, it's easy, isn't it, to give thanks when things are going well. But when you really see and need the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart is to be able to give thanks when things are hard. To give thanks even in trials. As you humbly submit to God's providential plan. 1 Corinthians 5.18 Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And you understand that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 You know and rejoice in your sufferings because you know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. Notice here again that this work is tied to the work of the Holy Spirit. Are you thankful? Are you thankful to the Lord even in the midst of your trials? You know, I've seen this in many of you. I, I, I've seen you walking in thankfulness, expressing thankfulness to the Lord in the midst of, of health trials or financial trials or relational trials in all kinds of trail, trials. And God is glorified in you. This is not coming from you. You can't make yourself be thankful for these things. 
This is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And, and yes, we struggle from time to time. But whenever you're able to say, thank you, Lord, I trust you, Lord, that's a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Yes, you continue to pray that, that God would remove the trial, but even more, you're praying that, that God would enable you to glorify Him in the trial. And so God is glorified as you express your humble dependence on Him, your Heavenly Father. So again, those who are filled with the Spirit sing God's praises to each other and to God, and they give thanks to God. And then finally, with the time that we have left, they submit to one another. So put on submitting to one another, verse 21. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning because this is going to come up repeatedly in the next several weeks. But, but this is going to, to serve as an introduction. And in fact, understanding this verse, and understanding that this verse is both a conclusion and an introduction is helpful in understanding it. It's a conclusion to the section where Paul focuses on relationships within the church, and it's also an introduction to Paul's focus on relationships within the family. Now again, these, your Bible might have, have subheadings here between, between, uh, between verse 21 and 22, but, but they're, they're, those weren't in the original text. The verses weren't there. The paragraph breaks weren't there. This is, this is all meant to be one thought, but this is both a, a conclusion and an introduction. So this final participle that, that Paul lists in this section is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this one is a hard one for many people. And it's perhaps even more difficult in our day when it was in Paul's day. Because submission has become a dirty word in our culture. But ever since the fall, Children have rebelled against parents, wives have rebelled against husbands, men have rebelled against everyone. But it's all evidence of rebellion against submission to God. Again, submission is a dirty word in our culture, but Paul uses it over 20 times in his letters, and over, 20, over 40 times in the New Testament. Well, what does the word submission mean? It means to arrange under, to order oneself under a leader. For example, soldiers under an officer of higher rank. So first of all, we need to know what, what this verse is not saying. Submission is not inequality of value. To make that very clear. Submission does not mean that there is any inequality of value. Like Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this does not mean that we all have, have, have the same, that we all are the same, or that we all have the same role, any more than it means that, that people can choose their own gender. It means that all races, both genders, and all social classes are equal before Christ in value. When it comes to gender, Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
Peter is saying that, that, that husbands need to, to understand their wives and to, to honor them. Because they're co-heirs of the grace of life. And if a husband is not doing this, then God's not even listening to his prayers. I'm going to talk a lot more about that in, in, verses, uh, um, in chapter 5, verses 25 and following. But it's, it's interesting that, that Paul, or that Peter rather, says this at the end of a section where he's just said in, in, in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, and, and previously to that, that, he's talking about submission. He's saying that in, the, in, uh, in 1 Peter 2 and following, he's saying that, slave, that, um, that, that citizens should submit to rulers, that slaves should submit to masters, and that wives should submit to husbands. Now we're going to talk more about the specifics of, of these things in the coming weeks. But Peter also goes on to say in 1 Peter 5 that the younger should submit to their elders. And again, immediately after telling elders that they should not be domineering over the flock. So on that note, we also need to understand that submission does not give license for domination. Submission does not give license for domination. Domination is, is an effect of the fall. Hierarchy is not, is, we'll talk more about this next week, hierarchy is not a result of the fall. Okay, there, there's order from creation. But domination, especially here in this context, domination of men over women, is a result of the fall. And we'll talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks. So submission does not allow for a controlling spirit, quite the opposite. Those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, are to, those, so those in authority are to be controlled by the Spirit, and they are to lead with humility. In fact, we're, we're all to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and to walk in humility. That's a vital part of what Paul is saying here. He says that we need to submit to one another. Now, all Christians are, are called to have and commanded to have a humble attitude. This is what it means, what it means to, to, that we are to walk in mutual service. So think of John, John 13, where, where Jesus stripped off his clothes, put on the, a, a servant's, a slave's garments, and washed the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. This is the king of kings becoming a slave and just... Turn with me for a moment to Ephesians, or rather Philippians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, where, where, where Paul says that we are to, to have the same mind. The same mind as, as, as Christ. Verse 5. Verse 6, verses, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped. That Jesus Christ, again, God the Son, became not just a slave, but he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. This is the kind of humility that we are to walk in in the, in the church, and all of us are, need, are to express that kind of humility. John Calvin says that God has so bound us to each other that no man ought to avoid subjection. Where love reigns, there is mutual servitude. I do not expect even kings and governors for their rule that they may serve. Therefore, it is very right that we should exhort all to be subject to one another. 
because nothing is more contrary to the human spirit than to submit to others, he recalls us to us the fear of Christ so that we may, know, we, we may not refuse the yoke and we may not be ashamed of serving our neighbors. Now, a helpful illustration for this is provided by, by uh, what this looks like in the church, is provided by Gilbert Bilizikian. He says two foot, soldiers, two foot soldiers are told by their officer to help each other with a project. And they submit to each other for its completion. There is no disparity or rank among them, but both are subject to the officer who is their hierarchical superior. That's from, from Bill Zekidian's book, Beyond Sexuals. And this, that book has been very influential. Dozenkinian recognizes that the natural meaning of the, the verb here, submit, whenever it appears in the New Testament, means to make oneself subordinate to the authority of a higher power, to yield to rulership. But he goes on. He says that with the addition of the reciprocal pronoun to each other, here in verse 21, to submit to one another, he says it changes its meaning entirely. He says that by definition, and hear this, this is Bill Zakinian's words, he says by definition, mutual submission rules out hierarchical differences. Do you see what Bill Zakinian is saying here? He's saying that Ephesians 5.21 cancels Ephesians 5.22 and following. He is pitting scripture against scripture. He is, is making the word of God to lie. This book has been extremely influential in evangelical circles. People are being deceived by this stuff. He, he, like so many good liars, he tells half a truth and then mixes it with a whopper of a lie. He's making God's word contradict itself, which God's word never does. So not only is, is this passage the conclusion of what, of what the Apostle Paul has just been talking about, about relationships in the church, but it also serves as an introduction. If you, as you see, we'll, we'll see this in the coming weeks in, in 5.22, that the wives are to submit themselves, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In 6.5, slaves, obey your earthly masters. But as you can see, as, as we walk through these things, that each of those is, is also balanced in the Word of God to say that, that this is never to, to be an occasion for, for domineering over somebody else. Again, that this type of, of, of submissive, and, uh, submissive attitude of, of wives to husbands and children to parents and slaves to masters is never a license for there to be a, a domineering spirit to be oppressed by those that are in authority. And you can't do this, you can't submit to anyone unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit. But look how verse 21 finishes. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that, that really is, is not a, a strong enough word, that, the word translated reverence, it actually means fear. It's out of fear of Christ. And we don't often hear those, those terms um, put together. We, we hear fear of God and fear of the Lord, but rarely do we see in scriptures fear of Christ. This is, this is a, um, yes, it does mean reverence, but, but there, is a, there is a fear attached to that. 
It's, it's, a, it's a, an awful, in the, the truest sense of the word, a full of awe, fear of dishonoring the Lord. And, and for those who, who deny, who deny these, these truths that are very clear in scriptures, not just here, but, but throughout the scriptures, what they're really revealing is that, that, that in this area they have a lack of fear of the Lord. Lack of fear of Christ. And there's, there's a call, there's a command here to submit again, not just to these, these hierarchical structures that, that are in God's Word that he's about to talk about, but, but really a, a submission to God and to His Word. So again, those who, who are filled with the Holy Spirit need to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order that, that we, will, we will continue to, to sing praises to God, that we'll continue to give thanks to God, and that we'll continue to submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly God, we, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that, that you would help us, Lord, just to help us to understand what your Word really teaches. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would cause your Word, not my words, but your Word to go forth in, in hearts with the power of the Spirit, Lord, to, to, bring, to bring submission to you, to bring repentance where, where it needs to take place. That you will enable us to walk. That you will empower us to walk in, in the way that you call us to walk. For the glory of your name. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.